This is Sean Lynn Jones, editor of International Security, quarterly journal of international relations that's based at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Today, I'm joined by John Schusler, who's assistant professor of strategy and international security at the Air War College and the author of a recent article that appears in the spring 2010 issue of International Security. It's called The Deception Dividend, FDR's Undeclared War, and it's a fascinating look at the way in which uh, President Roosevelt maneuvered the United States into World War II. John, I wonder if we could begin by uh, talking a little bit about how you got interested in this topic. What really drew you to it? Okay, sure. Um, well, as often happens with uh, projects of this nature, uh, a few threads came together at once. Um, I began work on this as a dissertation in, uh, you know, in the uh, kind of 2003-2004 uh, period, and a, a few things were going on around that time. Uh, first, and most obviously, you had the, the Iraq War, and uh, there were a lot of insinuations in the press and discussions among us in the halls that uh, the Bush administration had not been totally forthcoming with the public about um, about its reasons for the Iraq war and that there were serious problems with the evidence underpinning their case. And I know we'll, I believe we'll return to this subject later. Um, at the same time, I had been exposed to a fair amount of literature, uh, academic literature and in international relations on kind of the exceptional nature of the decision-making process in democracies, uh, um, specifically uh claims that uh, democracies are characterized by an open marketplace of ideas uh, where claims by administration officials like we need to go to war with Iraq are scrutinized uh, by the press, by experts, by the public, and kind of the good is sifted from the bad. And obviously there was a clash there between what, what we were seeing with uh, in the lead up to the Iraq war and, and, and what the literature tells us should have happened. Um, Heim Kaufman, for example, has written a piece um, that appeared in International Security in 2004 on this topic. And, um, and that piece and, and the general discussion motivated me to look a bit more closely at um, under what conditions would leaders resort to deception? Are, were there cases beyond the Iraq war um, where, where this has happened and, you know, can anything be, could, could deception possibly be justified in any of these cases? And that kind of took me into my dissertation project. Could you tell me a little bit more about this literature? Because I remember not too long ago, the conventional wisdom that was that democracies weren't very good at foreign policy. In oh. fact, they were at a big disadvantage in um, the struggle against totalitarian states that were somehow more brutal and Machiavellian or just more cunning. What does the, the new literature about uh, democracies and their advantages say? Good question. Uh, yeah, as I track kind of the intellectual history of the field, um, there was real pessimism during the Cold War on the part of uh, so-called classical realists like George Kennan um, Hans Morgenthau about uh, about uh, the ability of a democratic system to deal with um, difficult foreign policy issues, and uh, the thinking here was that um, the public could not be trusted um, 
to anchor kind of a sound foreign policy. And in a democracy, the leadership is responsive to the public. And the public could be emotional, the public could be short-sighted, the public could be volatile. And for all these reasons, um, if, de if a democratic foreign policy was rooted in, in public opinion, then um, this could be catastrophic given the stakes in the Cold War, the possibility of a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union and the like. Well, um, as often happens uh, with academic debates, the real world intervened and uh, the United States prevailed peacefully in the Cold War. Um, and so you saw uh, a number of efforts in the 80s and then increasingly in the 90s um, to stake out a, a counterclaim. And this was uh, that, that democracies were actually exceptionally good at foreign policy. Um, this is what I would call the kind of core liberal claim. Um, the, the most notable contribution here is the democratic peace finding. Uh, I'd, I'd say first attributed um, in a, to, to Michael Doyle. Others had 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 come across the finding, but Michael Doyle really did a lot of the theoretical work. Um, basically, the finding is that democracies have not and are not likely to fight each other, and um, he attributed this uh, uh, drawing on uh, Immanuel Kant's work on the perpetual peace to the nature of democratic political systems, and specifically. He directly took on the realist claim that, you know, uh, public input led to uh, an unsound foreign policy. Uh, his claim is that actually it's exactly the constraints that the public puts on the leadership that lead to a prudent foreign policy because the public cares deeply about the kind of cost-benefit ratio. And if, if, if leaders are accountable to publics, then they'll think twice about taking on ill-considered wars and because of that, democracies are likely to deal with each other in a different way than non-democracies do. Do you um, agree with this um, general argument that democracies somehow manage to win their wars? And why does that happen if they actually do? Right. So uh, beyond the democratic peace claim, there's a new debate uh, about, about democracies and war fighting, which is that democracies uh, are not only remain at peace with each other, but they win their wars. And, uh, and and scholars like Dan Ryder and Alan Stam, who I um, uh, who I address in the article, actually uh, attribute this uh, to some of the same reasons that the Democratic Peace folks cited. That you know, public opinion leads to prudent war making. Now, do I agree with this? Um, on the one hand, the the body of evidence is rather impressive. Um, uh, now, that evidence has been contested, for example, in the pages of International Security by Alexander Downs and Michael Desch, but um, it has to be dealt with. How can we account for the seeming fact that democracies remain at peace with each other and win a lot of their wars? On the other hand, I see serious problems with the theory underpinning this finding, that there's something exceptional about democracy, per se, that leads to this outcome. Um, uh, my colleague uh, uh, from the University of Chicago graduate school days, Sebastian Rosato, for example, has critiqued the theoretical underpinnings of the democratic peace in an uh, American political science review article. And I feel like I'm engaged in a similar project to really push against the theoretical claim that it's democracy per se that's accounting for um, accounting for the democratic peace and, and then the democratic victory finding. And my way of doing this is to kind of uh, at least in the article, is is to ask, well, if indeed, uh, if it 
if it, it, it indeed is the case that the democratic process is leading to sound war making, for example, do we see the democratic process operating in the fashion claimed? Is there open public debate? Are leaders heeding public opinion? And I found, at least in the World War II case, that, that it was not quite that straightforward. I know in your article you say a lot about um, the idea of the selection effect. Right. And I wonder if you could explain that uh, a little bit more for us. Sure. Uh, so uh, basically, Ryder and Stam and others who have addressed this democratic victory finding that democracies win their wars, they, they advance two explanations. The first, which I don't deal with extensively, is, quote, the warfighting explanation, which is simply that for a number of reasons, democracies are better at fighting wars than non-democracies. And I won't say a lot about that. Uh, the other argument is, quote, the selection effect argument. And the inspiration here is Ryder and Stam's finding that, well, turns out if you look at the data that democracies win 93% of the wars, they start. So why is that? Their argument is that public opinion um, forces democratic leaders to kind of think twice before they start wars, and particularly to think twice about starting a war that would be unduly difficult or costly. And so what you have is a pattern where when democracies do start wars, they tend to be um, uh, easy. They, they tend to end in quick and decisive victories. And um, Ryder and Stam attribute this to the requirement to marshal public consent for war. And so this, this selection effect argument fits very comfortably with the larger liberal claim that democracy leads to prudent foreign policy. So how does World War II and the U.S. entry into World War II in particular fit uh, into this? Um, it doesn't sound quite like the kind of case you've just summarized. Uh, why were you so interested in what Roosevelt did? A, a few reasons. Uh, one, since we were just talking about the selection effect, um, after doing some reading uh, on the case, reading some of the historiography, which I'll get to in a moment, uh, just at a basic level, there seemed to be a clash, again, between the theory we had, specifically the selection effect argument, and what I was seeing empirically in the case. So, um, and, and I know we'll address this in some detail, uh, I saw Roosevelt as taking an active role in pushing the United States into the war, a war that he knew um, was unpopular in some ways with the public and that he knew would be costly and protracted. Um, I saw this as a clear outlier in some ways for the selection effect argument, and I wanted to know why, um, why Roosevelt uh, was doing what he's doing and, and, and was he successful. Um, that, that, that's the academic reason. Now, there's uh, I'd say uh, another reason, which is simply, again, a disjuncture between what I'd call uh, the national mythology about the war and, again, what a lot of the history, I think, says. The national mythology is that the United States um, uh, was basically forced into this fight by Japanese and German aggression and really didn't want war. Um, and I think this is a, a flattering portrait, but not accurate. And I think most historians would at least concede that, uh, that, that the United States played at least some role in bringing itself into the war because there were serious security issues at stake. And then where the disagreement comes in is uh, 
uh, kind of what kind of war did the Roosevelt administration want to get into? How how actively did they push or provoke to get into it? And and I kind of intervene at that point. Well, when you say the United States wanted war, do you mean FDR and his advisors or the population uh, at large? In uh, in your article, you talk a lot about the uh, political climate. And uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the dynamic that was operating uh, then and uh, the constraints on FDR and what he really seemed to uh, want and the strategies he used. Sure. Well, there, the core dynamic of the case, at least for me, is the disjuncture between um, Roosevelt's, uh, Roosevelt's feelings about the war. And I'm talking here about uh, the period between the outbreak of the European War and the fall of 1939 and then Pearl Harbor. And what I would say, uh, the larger public, what their feelings were. So Roosevelt, I think, figured out at a fairly early point, um, at the very least, that if Hitler were to prevail in, in uh, subduing the British and the French and, and then the Soviets, that that he would pose a serious threat and Nazi Germany would pose a serious threat to the Western Hemisphere. And FDR, for example, you, you see him at a rather early point uh, talking in some detail about uh, potential uh, bomber attacks on U.S. cities and the like. So he, 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 had an er he had an acute sense that the U.S. was in serious danger in the event of a, of a Nazi victory in Europe. Now, the public, on the other hand, I think was became increasingly aware of this danger over time, and certainly by the time of Pearl Harbor, the polling would suggest that people were acutely aware again of the Nazi danger. The difference was uh, was that the public was very reluctant to ever uh, directly sign on to intervening in the war. So FDR, um, and this is the controversial point, I think, um, became resigned to the fact that I'd say, you know, in the early part of 1941, especially moving into the summer, that the U.S. would have to intervene in a, in a fairly active way in the war to prevent a Nazi victory. And I don't think the public ever reached that collective judgment prior to Pearl Harbor. Hence, John, can yes. I just ask, it's, it's an interesting point you raise about the public, because it does seem to be at odds with the earlier uh, general theory of democratic exceptionalism and democratic advantage. Why didn't the American public, if it, it was a prudent public and if the marketplace of ideas operated, figure out that this war was in America's interests and just had to be fought? They still seem to want to stay out of the war, right. even as late as 1941. That's an excellent question. I actually think in a, in a, in a very interesting way, uh, the public's thinking here is quite consistent with liberal, liberal theorizing. So if you, if, you, you know, if you start with Immanuel Kant, if you look at the democratic peace literature, if you look at what Ryder and Stam are saying, they're all stressing that the public is highly sensitive to costs, specifically casualties. Well, here's a case where the public is confronted with um, a potentially catastrophic war on the European continent against a very powerful Nazi enemy. And I, I actually don't think it's surprising that the public was quite reluctant to intervene in any frontal way in the war. Um, I think the difference is that FDR, um, FDR uh, emphasized the threat 
and the public in some, way, some ways was emphasizing the costs it was about to pay. And I, I see that as rather rational. Um, but that what, where I would part ways with the liberal canon on this is that, well, you can have the leadership and the public, I think, um, thinking quite rationally, and, let, and yet there still might be some requirement for deception because the leadership simply is prioritizing the threat and, uh, rather than the costs. Um, that, that's the way I came to think about it. So how did the uh, Roosevelt administration deal with the situation where it had basically a public that didn't want to pay the price of a, a major war? I think the first point to make is that um, in a general way, FDR uh, is considered a master politician for a reason. He he always he always kept his hand close to his vest. Um, it's very difficult to pin down what his uh, intentions were at any one point, and so you really have to kind of dig through the historical record rather carefully to get get a picture of what he was up to. But m- I intervene on the side of those historians like Robert Dalek, um, Mark Trachtenberg, um, in some ways Waldo Heinrichs, who basically say that um, FDR gently but persistently, I guess, was nudging the country toward war as 1941 goes on in a, in a few ways. Uh, one, uh, intervening in the Battle of the Atlantic, you have uh, the Nazis uh, actively launching a U-boat campaign to kind of isolate and starve the British out of the war, and FDR uh, orders the Navy to intervene in a rather active way to keep the supplies moving to Britain. And obviously, this is a rather direct act of war from the perspective of Germany, and FDR was aware that this was provocative and yet didn't shy away from it. Um, and, the, and then the second, I think, major... Uh, set of developments is, is in the Pacific. And this is especially controversial where uh, FDR um, responds, uh, I think, in a, in, a, in a very aggressive way to Japanese moves in Indochina uh, starting in July 1941, uh, places an oil embargo on them, uh, knowing that that might lead to war in the Pacific. And in both of these ways, uh, by intervening in the Battle of the Atlantic and by um, uh, engaging in economic coercion in the Pacific theater against Japan, uh, FDR is in, 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 in significant ways provoking Germany and Japan. I know it's hard for us to think about it in that way, given how aggressive the Nazis and the Japanese were, but um, FDR in some ways is trying to bring on a war. At least that's the judgment I reached. Do you think that um, the activities of the United States uh, diplomatically and and militarily in the Pacific reflected an assumption that even with the deep involvement of the United States in the Battle of the Atlantic, um, you know, to the point where they were really engaging in combat with German U-boats, wasn't going to be enough to provoke Germany into uh, starting a war against the United States. It just seems odd that they would uh, risk – a two-front war when when right might have been enough yeah and by the way i'd say that's the most serious critique of 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 this quote backdoor to war argument the backdoor to war thesis is that fdr in some ways provoked the japanese in the pacific to get us into the european war quote by the backdoor and the best counter argument is well if his primary concern was nazi germany isn't it rather um 
a, a risky to say the least to, to simultaneously court war with Japan. That that's true. But if you look at what was happening in the Atlantic, um, there were incidents with the Germans, incidents that FDR claimed he wanted. Uh, there was the famous Greer incident involving a U.S. destroyer and a German U-boat um, that involved some shooting. The Germans uh, sunk two uh, U.S. ships, I believe the, uh, the Kearney and the Reuben James, resulting in the loss of several hundred lives. And rather than igniting a popular uproar demanding war with Germany, it led Congress to buckle down even more and and deny Roosevelt um, exactly what he wanted. Congress, for example, Roosevelt never felt comfortable asking for full repeal of the infamous Neutrality Acts because Congress was signaling that it wouldn't go that far. And this is even as um, there are open clashes in the Atlantic. So I think FDR figured out um, uh, um, rather promptly in, in the late summer, early fall of 1941 that naval incidents were not going to suffice. And simultaneously, I think he was turning the pressure up on Japan to compensate for that. Okay, so your argument is basically that Roosevelt opened the back door to war with Japan because he thought that would be a way to provoke an attack on the United States so that the United States would get into a war with Germany. And as it turned out, Germany fulfilled its commitments to Japan and declared war on the United States after Pearl Harbor was attacked. Yes. And uh, we ended up in the war that FDR apparently wanted. But there's a, another major issue here surrounding the, the back door, and that's the longstanding conspiracy theory that somehow FDR knew the Japanese were going to attack at Pearl Harbor and uh, just didn't say anything and you know, let it happen so it would lead America into war. And I, I, you have to comment about that because yes. it, it doesn't sound that different from your argument in some <laughs> ways. I don't know if you're willing to embrace that theory. I, I think that the, the Pearl Harbor conspiracy theories um, do a real disservice to what I think is a, a credible backdoor-to-war argument in the following sense. The evidence for the Pearl Harbor conspiracy arguments is quite problematic. There's a famous... Um, a book by Roberta Wolstetter um, about the Pearl Harbor attack um, that basically definitively shows, I would say, that FDR, you know, was not purposely courting an attack on Pearl Harbor per se. Um, and I, I stand by that judgment. Um, if, if FDR was trying to provoke a war with Japan, why would he risk the very fleet that he needed to fight that war? That said, um, there's, I think there's ample evidence that the administration expected some Japanese move in Southeast Asia in the late fall and early winter of 1941. And there are open discussions about, well, they're about to move in the Southeast Pacific. What can, you know, can we justify a war in response? And the concern was that if the Japanese only invaded, let's say, a British or a Dutch possession, that popular support for war might not be forthcoming. But at this point, uh, FDR was actively counting on it. And I would add that um, there were also some decisions reached that if, if war with Japan did come, that war with G Germany would be part of that. Um, as it turns out, intelligence indicated that if the U.S. did find itself at war with Japan, that Germany itself would declare war. And so FDR was not forced to declare war first. But I, you know... I would say that on the larger issue of the conspiracy theories, that those have been 
discredited, but that the backdoor to war thesis has not, despite, I think, some surface similarities. When you look at this case um, in its totality, uh, it's a little bit um, disturbing because it uh, does suggest that one of the most uh, important uh, wars in America his- America's history was brought on through presidential deception and manipulation. Right. What are the overall lessons that you draw when you uh, look at this case, both for international and uh, domestic politics, perhaps? Sure. I, I, I drew a few lessons. Um, the first is that uh, the liberals are really on to something here. I don't quite put it this way in the article, but um, yes, I do think the public is extremely sensitive to costs and risks. And because of that, uh, I think it's quite, I, I think it's unrealistic to expect the public to sign on willingly uh, to a major war uh, with another major power before that other power has provoked us in a rather direct way. I think. I think exactly because it's a democracy, the United, the United States will, will always have difficulty kind of openly declaring war as an act of policy against another major power. Um, that said, FDR did find a way, yes, by deception, to get the U.S. into the war. And if you believe that World War II was a necessary war for national security reasons, then in that sense, I guess realism, liberalism's theoretical foe is somewhat vindicated because realism is all about states doing what they need to do to preserve their vital interests. And you can say that that's what happened in this case, even though the process was messy. So I think in a larger sense, I would say that each side, realism and liberalism, can find something, some important element in the case that confirms its views. But it's the, the interaction between the two elements that I find the most interesting. Leaving aside the, the theoretical debate between the realist and the liberal paradigms, do you think Roosevelt did the right thing? Do you think uh, his actions were morally justifiable? I, this is a very difficult question to answer. There is this argument out there that actually the public was more receptive to getting into the war than Roosevelt himself thought, and that if he had posed the question directly – he would have gotten uh, support for intervening. And if you really believe that, and you believe World War II was justified or our entry was justified, then no, the deception, the deception was, was misguided. He, he should have tried the regular democratic process. But I, I'd say that more, more historians than not would, 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 part, would, would, would not agree with that view, would say that he did have a serious domestic opinion problem. And again, if you believe that World War II was justified, then I don't see what other alternatives he had. Um, so yes, I'd have to say at the limit, um, his actions were justified. I think this is an extreme case, though. I, I'm looking at others, and uh, you know there aren't many World War IIs out there. So uh, th- this is a difficult case, but I, I do think that, yes, his actions were justified in the end. For a lot of people, when they hear about presidential deception and war, they're going to say, well, yeah, I've heard this story before. I've seen this movie before, and it was Bush and uh, Iraq. They'll immediately start thinking that uh, presidential deception uh, well, may or may not have worked out so well in that case, but certainly right. uh, was part of the overall story. So 
you mentioned before that you were drawn to this case partly because of the uh, interest in the uh, 2003 Iraq War. How is that case and Bush's role similar or, or different from the World War II case in FDR? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, I'd say when I was at least doing my dissertation, um, my my instinct going in was that the the Iraq case was fundamentally similar to the World War II one, and that you had a president uh, facing a skeptical public who had to resort to a certain amount of fear mongering and provocation to bring them around. But the more I, I thought about it, there, there is a serious difference between the World War II and the Iraq case, which is that I think the Bush administration, I don't, want to, I don't know if I should use the word admirably, but was, um, was very transparent about its designs um, on Saddam in the following sense. For example, they released a national security strategy in the fall of 2002, basically elevating preventive war to the level of doctrine. Bush included Iraq in an axis of evil as early as January 2002. I think, you know, the fact that, that they wanted a war with Saddam was perhaps the worst kept secret in Washington at the time, in that fall of 2002, early 2003 period. And I think this is very different from Roosevelt's behavior who was very reluctant, I think, to hint in any obvious way that, that he had designs to get into the war. And I, I started to think about why that was. And I think the crucial difference is that the expectation at the time, in, early two, in late 2002, early 2003, was that the U.S. would have an easy time in Iraq. And because of that, Bush was able to be rather forthcoming about what he was about to do. Um, which then gets to the issue of threat inflation, which is where a lot of the discussion lies. Well, didn't he exaggerate the threat posed by Iraq? Didn't he exaggerate the imminence of the threat, you know, Saddam's nuclear uh, arsenal and the like and ties to al-Qaeda? I, yes, I, I, I do think he did some of that. I don't think that threat inflation was as crucial for bringing the public around, though, as people claim, I think the public was somewhat predisposed to war in this case, uh, partly because of 9-11 and partly because of expectations that it would be a quick and decisive victory. And so I, I do think there was some threat inflation, basically to suggest that this was an imminent threat that had to be dealt with, that Saddam had to be dealt with. But I, I see it as a different case from the World War II one. FDR had to be much more coy. Would I be oversimplifying a little bit too much to say that in World War II, FDR deceived the United States into the right war, and in Iraq, Bush fairly openly led the United States into the wrong war? I think that's correct. I, and again, this, this has some disturbing implications, right, for the liberal view that the democratic process yields prudent outcomes, because... I think the democratic process worked more openly in the Iraq case than in the World War II one. And bizarrely, I think this is rather consistent with the selection effect argument, with what, with what Ryder and Stam tell us. Their, their argument is that the public is not going to push back much against easy wars, and that's what you see in the Iraq case. Now, easy, I think, is not the same thing as prudent. You know, I, I In fact, realism would tell us that you should... Uh, you should refrain from war unless absolutely necessary, unless there's a major threat. So I think there are just two very different understandings of prudence out there. 
a realist understanding and a liberal one. And I think you're seeing that um, in the difference between the two cases. I think uh, you, you could make the argument in the Iraq war case that uh, even uh, if the Bush administration was open about its desire to initiate that war, uh, it uh, deluded itself and uh, certainly deluded the American people about the likely cost of the war. And uh, that, that in itself may be uh, you know, something of a challenge to liberal arguments about uh, prudent democratic decision-making. In fact, uh, World War II, if you look at the conduct of the war and the way the United States was woefully unprepared for it, might also uh, lead you to you know, question some of the democratic advantages as well, even though in the end the United States was able to uh, prevail. It certainly right. was not prepared for that war, just as it uh, turned out that the Bush administration wasn't prepared for the war that eventually resulted in Iraq. So maybe those are some broader lessons here. But I wonder if, if you could say a little bit more about um, what this case and uh, what you're thinking about the more general application of liberal and realist theories to democratic decision-making uh, can tell us. What's the most important thing that readers should take away from your article? I think the most important thing that, that readers should take away from the article is that the democratic process, uh, while it has, I think, more virtues than flaws, can lead to some paradoxical outcomes. In this case, I think it was the democratic process that forced FDR to be deceptive. And therefore, um, a necessary war was preceded by a certain amount of necessary deception. Um, and I think we as a society need to be prepared for this. I think people are cynical about politics these days, so maybe, uh, maybe some of the arguments I'm making uh, uh, resonate a bit more than they would have a decade or so ago. But uh, I think we need to come to terms with both, um, I think, many of the virtues that flow from the fact that the United States is a democracy as well as some of the paradoxical things that follow. And I, I think that the liberal canon, for example, has simply underemphasized uh, some of the paradoxes that flow from, from, from liberal politics. Ironically, I don't think this was the case with some of the early proponents like Michael Doyle. Michael Doyle, for example, um, in his early writings on the democratic peace would talk about uh, the crusading that liberal democracies sometimes do, their fraught relations with non-democratic states. But I think some of that emphasis has gone away over time. Well, that's uh, something fascinating to think about, John. And I want to thank you again for uh, joining me uh, today. Uh, once again, uh, I've been talking to John Schutzler, whose article, The Deception Dividend, FDR's Undeclared War, appears in the spring 2010 issue of International Security. Thanks again, John. It's been good talking to you. Yeah, thank you very much, Sean.